verses 19. Now in those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, her husband set out to Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Her father urged him to stay a while. So he stayed three days, eating, drinking, and sleeping there. On the fourth day, the man was up early, ready to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat before you go. So the two men sat down together and had something to eat and drink. Then the woman's father said, please stay another night and enjoy yourself. The man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay. So he finally gave in and stayed the night. On the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave. And again, the woman's father said, have something to eat. Then you can leave later this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting. Later, as the man and his concubine and servant were preparing to leave, his father-in-law said, look, it's almost evening. Stay the night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early and be on your way. But this time the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and headed in the direction of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. It was late in the day when they neared Jebus, and the man's servant said to him, Let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night there. No, his master said, we can't stay in this foreign town where there are no Israelites. Instead, we will go on to Gibeah. Come on, let's try and get as far as Gibeah or Ramah, and we'll spend the night in one of those towns. So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We've been in Bethlehem, in Judah, the man replied. We're on our way to a remote area in a hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem, and now I'm returning home, but no one has taken us in for the night, even though we have everything we need. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You're welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house and such a thing would be shameful. Here. Take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. 
but don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Father, as we come to the end of your book of Judges, we come into contact with a very hard passage to wrap our heads around. We need you tonight, Lord. We need your grace tonight to help us understand why this is here, why this is how this book ends, Lord. I pray that as I go forward, my words are glorifying to you uh, and are most certainly condemning of the injustice that happened. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, here in the middle of midterms week in 2020, we open up the book of Judges, and we can certainly struggle to make heads or tail of any of the passages, and most certainly this one. Uh, we are so far removed from what life is like in ancient Israel, it can be difficult to see how things apply. After all, we don't live in a nation that's ruled by military judges or kings. We have presidents and we have governors. We are coming up on another presidential election and at face value, the issues that are facing us today and are being debated have little resemblance with what goes on in Old Testament Israeli life. Yet, if engaging with the election year comes with any sort of a certainty, it's that we will be awakened to just how many problems we have to deal with in the world, right? We see poverty and human trafficking are common topics. We see racism and sexual abuse and just the raw corruption of our own politics, systems that always need reform and disease around the globe, and the list goes on. But even then, what is going on in our lives at UGA in our day-to-day -day is enough to feel a groaning that things are not as they should be. Some of us are already well aware of this and feel it all the way down in your bones. You walk into this room with a limp of ceaseless anxieties that cloud you, and it can be hard to envision any sort of a solution to everything that's going on. 
It can be hard to see and into the pain in your own life and in the world. And with everything that's going on in the world and the things that personally burden you, it's hard to see how Judges 19 can inform us today. Judges is probably the most, oh, sorry. Judges ends with probably the most tr- tragic story of them all. It is visceral. It is offensive to our senses. And we have to ask ourselves why a book of the Bible would end this way. It doesn't feel like there's a resolution here. It doesn't feel like there's any hope here. This feels empty. We don't see a hero coming to the rescue this time. What's here is confusing, yes, but while Casey was reading, you may have even been filled with your own groaning. Bothered by the atrocity and the lack of justice served. And and that there needs to be an answer for this. And I think it's exploring those questions that help us show us the point God's trying to get to here. What's described as deeply repulsive, and it was also deeply repulsive by ancient Israeli standards. The rest of the Bible actually refers back to this moment in their history as them as, at their most despicable and their most shameful. God is not endorsing the conduct of the nation of Israel in this passage. God is getting very clear, rather, about what Israel's problem is. He's offering a mirror for them to look at themselves. The suffering experience, experience in this narrative is horrific, and we're not going to fall into the trap of just sweeping it under the rug and uh, writing it off as some strange Old Testament violence that we're not supposed to know the meaning of. No, it's very m- much worth knowing the depths of the depravity here, and we're going to honor this woman tonight, and we're going to get down to the root of this evil. Throughout this book, we have seen that Israel always seems to be in trouble. But all of the stories thus far have been Israel suffering from outside armies. This time, God is revealing the suffering happening to their people by their people. Unlike all the other stories, there's another thing that's unique. Everyone in it here is anonymous. However, this is not to show that God isn't holding anyone accountable, as if his people don't need to have justice served to them as well. Note, you see, in the last two chapters of Judges, the narrative continues, and the Levite publicly testifies before all of Israel, and there is an all-out civil war. Their names are known to the public and by God. In this story, though, they are known to us by the roles they held in society. What we are to glean from this passage is that this is how Levites behaved. This is how fathers treated their daughters in Israel. This is how women were dehumanized. This is our graphic glimpse into a community where everyone defined what was right and wrong in their own eyes instead of in God's eyes. The passage opens with a Levite and his concubine, but let's give a clarification of terms real quick as to what these people are. Levites were to be the priests for God's people. They're pastors. And a concubine is not another word that's synonymous for prostitute. This is a woman who, because of extreme poverty, had to sell herself into being a second-class wife. 
only owned by rich men who could afford multiple wives, serving only at their bidding, often neglected, and forced to perform sexual favors. If you're familiar with how the Bible starts, it's very clear about a few key ways that God created the world. One being that men and women were both created in the image of God. Both equally intrinsically valuable to their core identity. And also that marriage was to be between one man and one woman. Both of them working together, serving one another as a unit for the benefit of one another. Not between one man and multiple women and certainly not reducing the woman to a sex object. Y'all, historians tell us that concubinage was created by some of the most heinous societies we have ever seen in human history. Not something created by God. There's no laws in there about how to become a concubine. Concubinage was practiced in these heinous societies where the more women you owned, the more power you had. Right out of the gate, we see we're not peering into a society that is mindful of God or seeking to honor how he created the world. We're peering into a society who, despite being supernaturally delivered from slavery and oppression dozens of times in their history, cared nothing for how he created the world and actively rebelled against his rule. The people of Israel only cared about God in so much as they felt he could secure their peace and prosperity. They instead decided to learn from those who enslaved them about what, about what is good. So their hearts hardened to stone. These military leaders who pushed out things that hindered their pursuits of power, notice that these leaders we've read about never once changed anything about how Israel lived their day-to-day life only took praise for how they secured Israel's self-defined pursuit of power as they all ignored that it was God who delivered them. And so we read on in this historical account. And we become well acquainted with how hard Israel's hearts have become. We see a father who is over-solicitous and desperate to be hospitable to a corrupt priest. Why? Because although the Levite dehumanized his daughter, the fact that she left him meant that shame and isolation would be put on the father if the news got out. We see a town so crime-riddled, the life of any traveler that comes into it is in danger. And we see another father who rationalizes fending off a mob to save a corrupt stranger by sacrificing his daughter. And then lastly, we see the Levite treat this woman who was supposed to be his wife with incomprehensible callousness and inhumanity as if she were an animal. Angry, not at the abuse, after all, he sent her out to them. No, he was angry because his property was damaged and someone needed to pay for it. 
God gives a written account here because Israel needed to look in the mirror. God will not let them erase the shame of what they did and twist history. They need to reckon with what they have become and how they let sin rule their hearts. So sitting before this passage, how do we react to what's going on here? In the here and now, what do we do with this? We pause and we mourn over the evil. Because that's what it is. These were supposed to be God's people. They had received promises from God that he would deliver them from empires who enslaved them and that he would be their God and provide for them and sustain them and that he did just that dozens of times. He was always faithful to them. He had given them the law so that they can then pursue righteousness and be a blessing to the world, a light to the world but they proved to be no better than those they were set apart from. They attempted to reject God's rule over them, recreating the slavery and suffering they were set free from. And sitting here tonight before God's account of the depth of evil in the world, we're confronted with something. This was a mirror for Israel to look in and reckon with themselves. God's people, and we receive a wake-up call, don't we? I want to be careful here because this was an extremely terrible crime. We need to be cautious about how we try to make it speak directly and what we experience here in Athens, Georgia, <laughs> because Israel decayed into a state of civil war after this. And by God's grace, that's not the state of our lives. If you've been around RUF long enough, we know we do not deal with each other in such depravity. But these were also God's people, and we would be ignorant to think that we are immune to the darkness of sin. Perhaps this is a wake-up call that we need to repent of our own selfish pursuits. We need to take the time to feel the conviction God is placing on our hearts here. I think we need to be honest about how weak our hearts are to resist being hardened. If we're honest, we have secrets buried deep down of how sin has creeped into our lives. Or maybe we haven't caused this terrible suffering, but we most certainly have not gone about preventing it in opportunities where we did have a chance to. Tim Keller comments on this passage, and he says, we will have all told ourselves and others a better story about our lives and our conduct than the whole truth would reveal, right? Oh, Christian, we need to stop before this passage and ask what ways have we been complicit in letting the darkness of sin still have power on this campus? Because all of us walk into this room and we know the weight of it. Just this week, I came across this heart-shattering post on the Overheard at UGA page. A student sharing her story that she was molested while riding one of the orbit buses that we ride every day. And reading through the comments, there were more women who came forward and shared their own stories. And one in particular is the one that brought me to tears. It said, 
I am a grad student who has been flashed and grabbed in North Deck, and I'm just so grateful not to have been raped. What hold does the evil of sin have on this campus where the women in our community cope through the mentality that they're just grateful not to be traumatized? Why is that the bare minimum expectation? And then I remember conversations that I've had with many of you friends where you've shared with me that you have trained yourself to just automatically be on high alert when you're doing something as innocent as walking to your car, walking back to your dorm, or just walking across campus. I'm not going to ignore here that men also suffer from sin. Please, let's talk about that. Please come find me after. Let's meet up. I want to hear your story. But I'm also not going to ignore that the clearest way this informs our times is how we as Christian men are upholding and advocating for the God-given dignity of the women here in this room and on this campus. It is worth asking ourselves in what ways are we tempted to listen to culture and treat women as property. How can we seek to do better? How can we seek to actually value friendship with the other half of the people in this room? How can we go about fighting to restore their dignity on this campus? Because they deserve better. If we go back to the beginning of the talk, we see there's a lot of ways we collectively need to seek to do better as well. As this election year continues to unfold, we are well aware that the remnants of evil, suffering, and sin has not gone away. Headline after headline of national and international news helps us see what was at play in this passage has not passed. We come in here tonight with our own anxieties that burden us, our shame and our trauma that haunts us, and I don't know about y'all, but as Casey was reading, it just makes me groan out, is all of this suffering in vain? We know we need a solution to what is going on in this world. Y'all, our politics is a testament that we need one, never-ending policies and reform proposals of systems that never get fixed. Judges affirms that we need a solution. The whole thing testifies that we need help. The world is broken, but the end of Judges shows us that we cannot be our own solution. The whole point that this book is trying to make sandwiches our narrative. We need a king. Which sounds weird in the world where kings and royalty is scarcely found, but don't we treat our presidents as kings? Every time one of them is elected, the campaign trail is that... they're going to usher in a new era for the country, right? But I think we know the emptiness of that. (laughs) Nothing is ever completely fixed. After all, how could a human make a world without suffering if there is not a single one alive that has experienced one? Politics dissatisfy us because our hearts long for an everlasting kingdom where suffering is eliminated and justice is never threatened. 
our hearts know we need a king. We need a king that has the power to rule our hearts that are so prone to reject God and reconcile us back to him. We need a king that can rescue us, a king with the power to destroy the darkness that hardens our heart and not destroy us with it. We, a king who doesn't just reduce the rates of suffering, but can purge evil from our society. We need a king with the power to reach into the depths of our injustice and rescue us from the oppression. We need a king with the power to pour out a justice that restores us. We need a king that can give us hope that our pain is not in vain and the injustice we experience will give way to an even greater justice. And Judges ends by priming this great longing in our hearts for a great rescue. But in the year 2020, we can read and see that while this book has come to an end, our Bibles have not. In this end sentence, at the mention of the word king, you see something else is primed to us. And Christian, I stand before you and I declare we have a king. This longing is quenched as we launch forward into the rest of scripture to the gospel of Matthew. And we see that we are able to begin reading about our Lord Jesus Christ, God made flesh who came down to this earth and revealed himself as this king. We read that as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem to claim his throne, that the Bible says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And oh, did he come on a rescue mission. God himself came down and experienced every aspect of what it was like to be human in a sinful world, and he powerfully persevered, righteously sinless, because he was on a mission. In verse 30 of this judge's passage, Israel might not realize, but they know justice needs to be served. That's one thing to get right. God's name may be missing in this chapter, but his feelings on the matter are not hidden. We look at Hosea chapter 10 as he proclaims, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. From the days of Gibeah, there it is. You have sinned, O Israel. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Justice needed to be served for their sin, and God was determined to reach into the pit of sin and rescue his people at the same time. So Christ marched on into Jerusalem. It was there we read that he was rejected and he was put on trial and his innocence was found guilty. He was scourged, he was battered, he was publicly abused, he was tortured to inhumane depths, he was crucified and murdered. He experienced this same depth of injustice. You may be a skeptic here that thinks that Christians try to let themselves off the hook for suffering that happens. But you see, the Christian God literally came down to put himself on the hook for human injustice on his rescue mission for creation. Doctor, as Dr. Karen Ellis points out, Christ did not suffer publicly for his own benefit, but chose to do so for a humanity alienated from God. 
This included many who, in their hostility towards Christ, rejected him and his message. His suffering on the cross served to accomplish redemption, but it also served to redempt his purpose as a powerful witness to both who he is and what he came to do. You see, for those who have faith in Christ as their king, we, have, have he, we see that he came to free us from the penalty of our sin and heal how sin in this world has devastated us. He took our misery and our suffering so seriously, he put it on himself. And the story doesn't stop there either. We push through to the end of the Gospel of Mark to see that the penalty of our sin did not defeat God, but he defeated it. Christ our Lord died our death and was resurrected and In the last verses, he triumphantly claims his throne at the right hand of God our Father, ruling on our behalf. Our king successfully reached down to the depths of our depravity and and suffering and completed the rescue of his church. He rules on our behalf and is working through us in human history now to continue gathering his people to himself. And the greatest part of all this is the hope he has secured, and how wonderfully it contrasts from this moment in Judges. Let's launch forward one more time to Revelation 21 and see. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write these down, for I declare to you these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We are assured by our king in this passage that those who have placed their faith in him have secured a place in his kingdom. With our faith, his resurrection, or with our faith in his resurrection, we are separated from our iniquity. And when his justice rolls over the earth like a river, we will not be swept away with sin but rather we are assured that it is trustworthy and it is true that we will forever be loved and cherished and secured by our king. Christian, all pain and injustice has an expiration date. And I don't know what y'all have come to do here tonight, but I have come to praise the Lord because the longing of our souls has been quenched and we are freed to see the praises of the king we once relentlessly rebelled against. We can triumphantly proclaim Jesus' great rescue as we sing alongside those who our hearts were once hard towards. With Audrey Asad, we can rejoice. Our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You are speaking truth to power. You are laying down our swords. And so led by our brothers and sisters at the porter's gate, let us come of one accord to lift up praises to our king. There is splendor and there is power all around him. 
and we will gather all together, every nation, tribe, creed, and color. Let the body come alive and our creator finally be glorified. Is the good news not glorious, Christian? So in the light of this future hope, what do we do once we leave this room? Theologian Jamar Tisby has wise words for life here in the already victorious but not yet glorious. Although we are in a daily fight against sin, the war has already been won. Christ is victorious. He has freed us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and one day he will free us from the presence of sin. But while we remain on this side of heaven, we will have to struggle. And yet we struggle not in our own power, but in the power of Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. So Christian, as we wait to see our King face to face and to be restored, let us persevere together. Let us persevere in the face of sin and suffering, resting in the power of Jesus Christ. In the face of poverty, Christian, let us persevere in economic reform, proclaiming how Christ provides for his people. In the realms of disease and medicine, Christian, let us persevere in research and in healthcare to proclaiming that Christ's everlasting kingdom is bringing an end to the curse. In the realm of abortion, Christian, let us persevere on the behalf of the children and the, child, and, and the woman, proclaiming how Christ is restoring the dignity and the value of humanity from the womb to the tomb. In the midst of anxiety and depression, Christian, let us endure together and not in isolation. For Christ is with us and we need to be reminded always that he has secured the victory and will deliver us. And in the face of racial injustice, Christian, let us persevere in justice reform, proclaiming how our king will dismantle all systems of oppression. And so for those of you who struggle to buy into Christianity, consider what it means that Christ is king. And we would love to talk you more, to you more about who he is. Maybe for the first time, put your faith in what he has done. And now, Christian, in the face of sin and suffering, let us together persevere as one body and hold fast to our king. Amen. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that in the light of evil that is in this world, we have a hope of eternal glory. That you have came down and you have completed our rescue and one day, one sweet day, we will be together with you and you will wipe our pain away. Lord, there will no longer be a fight. Father, we long for this Come and heal us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.